Well, if you have your Bibles, again, I encourage you to open them and turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we have been studying this book. We're not far into it. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we are just in the third week of uh, the book of Acts, starting today uh, at the beginning of chapter 2. We began by looking at the ascension of Jesus, that glorious that glorious event when Jesus rose into heaven. And we looked at that a few weeks ago and talked about why it matters. And last week we considered... Something's buzzing. Last week we considered again uh, the importance of prayer, as I just prayed, the importance of prayer for our mission and our life together. And I also wanted us to find comfort in the truth as exhibited in the end of chapter 1 in the book of Acts here, that God's plans cannot be frustrated. God's plans cannot be frustrated. His plan for the world in a grand redemptive scale as we see here in the book of Acts and His plan for you in the gritty day-to-day mundane moments of your life. But today we move to another wonderful, familiar event to many of you, Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at just the first 21 verses together of Acts chapter 2. And so listen as I read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. 
And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the blood to moon. The moon to blood, excuse me, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. As you think about events that changed our world forever, maybe events that changed your world forever, what comes to mind? Because we all have these events in our collective life together as well as in our personal experiences and our personal stories. One only need to say three numbers to bring one to mind. Nine, eleven. Going further back in history, we could think about the atomic bomb. It was dropped on Hiroshima and then in Nagasaki. Going back even further, we could think about the invention of the printing press and how that changed our world forever. And then we could come back full circle and think about the internet and how that has changed our world forever. Well, personally, maybe it was... Getting married for you that changed everything. (laughs) Maybe it was that diagnosis of, of cancer that changed everything. Maybe it was that loss of a loved one. You see, we all have these things that have changed us. And we will never, ever be the same. And when we think about our faith, When we think about the reality of our existence, whether you believe it or not, what are the events that matter most to us? Well, certainly the incarnation, the coming of Jesus in flesh, changed everything. Jesus' death on a cross changed everything. His resurrection from the dead changed everything. And then I hope, after what we've said in the past couple weeks, that you would add to that list the ascension of Jesus as changing everything. Well, this morning we come to another such event, another such pivotal, historical, redemptive event in history that changed everything. And it's an event for us to understand, for us to marvel at, for us to learn from, and for us to be encouraged by, because it's the story that God is telling. We come this morning to a passage that I suspect is familiar for most of us. We have heard this story. It's familiar in the sense of its imagery. Tongues of fire. How could we ever forget that picture? How can we not visualize and imagine what that was like? But what does it mean? And what is its significance? And why is it here for us Today, Well, those are some of the questions that I want to answer this morning as we work our way through this passage. And as usual, I want to do so around three points, around three truths. 
And I do this every week that we, you'll, have, you'll have things to hang God's truth on as you walk from this place. And that our kids will have truths in their minds that they can hang this truth of God's word on. And the first truth I want to think about is this. God's promises are always true. God's promises are always true. There's a phrase I hear a lot in my home. You promised, Dad. You promised. If I had a nickel for every time I heard that phrase, so many of my children's expectations are built upon what I may or may not have, in some cases, said to them about what we're going to do. And I'd like to think that I come through most of the time for my children, but I know I don't. I know I fail their expectations. I know I break promises made to them. But what if we were cared by a Father whose Word never failed? What if we had a Father whose Word was 100% true all of the time? Who never lets us down? That's good news if that God is good. If that Father is good. Well, that's where I want to camp out for just a few minutes as we begin to look at this familiar text around the idea, around the issue of promise. Because I think promise is important for us to understand this passage and it's encouraging to our souls because we do have a Father who has made promises. We do have a Father who is good and can be trusted. And the gift that our Father gives to the church here is evidence of that truth. And so I want to spend our first big chunk of time trying to simply understand what exactly happened here. Our text for this morning at least the way I've divided it, is, is half event and half sermon. And the half, of, the half of the text that is sermon is really half of a sermon that we're going to look at the other half next week. So we got half event and half of a half of a sermon this week. This event took place on what is known as Pentecost. Pentecost. It gets overshadowed a bit that Pentecost was a long celebrated Jewish holiday. Perhaps many of you knew that. Perhaps many of you that is new. But Pentecost was a Jewish holiday that had been celebrated for generations. In the Jewish calendar, Pentecost was the second of three annual feasts. And is often referred to as the Feast of Weeks. We read in Leviticus 23, You shall count seven full weeks from the first day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You hear the word fifty in there. You understand where the penta comes from in Pentecost. Pentagram. Pentagon. Five sides. It comes from five, from fifty. The first fruits of harvest were presented to the Lord on the first day of the week after Passover. And then fifty days after that, the celebration of Pentecost 
would begin. You see, in this agrarian society, this was a harvest feast. It was celebrating God's provision and giving Him an offering of thanks for all that He has done. For indeed, growing our crops, we are dependent upon the Lord. And by this time in Jewish history, as these followers of Jesus sit and wait, as the Lord commanded them to do, by this time in history, Pentecost was also not just a celebration of the harvest, but it also had become a celebration of the giving of God's law. Because the giving of God's law after Sinai was about 50 days after the Exodus, after Passover. And so it kind of had a dual celebratory purpose in the Jewish mind and in Jewish life. Now that's all significant, not just to know as an interesting fact, but to make the point that Pentecost, the Jewish holiday Pentecost, was a big deal. It was a big deal in the Jewish calendar. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. These were the big ones, the big holidays that brought Jews who had been dispersed, who had been scattered all over the known world at that time, which was primarily the Parthian Empire and the Roman Empire. All the Jews were scattered. They would come back to Jerusalem in order to celebrate together as God's people. And that's significant, as we see in our passage. That's significant that there are so many different kinds of people there. And that's the reason. And so here they all are together and they're waiting in obedience to the Lord. And then it happens. And then it happens. Not a, not a literal wind, but the sound of a wind blowing into the space that they're occupying. I often think of you know, a freight train that you would hear in the distance and it gets louder and louder and it comes and it comes. I remember one time I was teaching uh, Jesus calming the storm to a bunch of preschoolers in Southern California. And I remember I thought it would be fun in order to give them a feel of that storm and, that, and, and give their senses a feel of the fear that was going on amongst Jesus' disciples, I, I put my computer with these big speakers in the side of the room, and when I said, and the storm built, I turned my computer on, and, and this huge blaring noise came in, and these preschoolers, their eyes got super big. See, Jesus' followers are gathering in this room, and all of a sudden, a wind, the sound of a wind comes blowing in. And then again, not a literal fire, not a literal fire, but what looked like lapping flames appeared and rested on each of the believers. The Spirit of God was here, had come through sight and through sound, through the symbols of of pounding power and burning holiness. The second person of the Trinity, the promised presence of power that Jesus had said would come had now arrived. And God had long ago foretold that this was going to happen. And Jesus had reiterated and He had elaborated upon it. And Peter reminds the disciples 
And I remind you this morning that God's promises are true. See, as we think more about this event, it was no coincidence that the coming of God's Spirit sounded and looked this way. God was saying something. He is saying something to us even here today. To the Jewish mind, wind wind was an image that was often associated with God. I mean, think about the very beginning of God's revelation to man, the creation of the world. What does it say in Genesis 1, chapter 2? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The breath of God filled Adam, the first man's lungs. Ezekiel prophesied that the wind would come through that valley of dry bones and would raise them to life and give them new life. And then the appearance of fire. Who could forget the bush that didn't burn that Moses came to and heard the voice of God, the pillar of fire that guided God's people through the night in those wilderness wanderings, the fire that consumed Mount Sinai as the Lord gave His law, the fire that hovered over the tabernacle. You see, wind and fire. The point is that these were not just random symbols. These were not just powerful signs. They were signs that were pointing to a redemptive coming. A redemptive event that had been longed for for ages. And it was a coming that was shrouded in imagery. And it was a coming that resulted in this unique display of revelation, the declaration of God's wonders in foreign tongues. These Galileans, these native Galileans with Native languages of Aramaic and and Greek were suddenly proclaiming the goodness of God to all those displaced Jews. All the names that I butchered a few minutes ago trying to read them. All these different regions who had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. They're now hearing the Word of God spoken to them. The wonders of God spoken to them. It was an event like no other. It was caused... Awe, it caused questions, it caused even cynicism. But what does it all mean? What does it all mean? That's the question we ask. That's the question that they asked as they witnessed these things. And Peter begins to answer. He begins to answer through his sermon. For what Luke had described, Peter now explains. And the first thing he wants to remind people of is that God said this would happen. That God's promises are true. And he does this by quickly dismissing the cynics. Those who assumed that these people were drunk. And that's why they were speaking like like the way they were speaking. And he says, guys, come on. These people are not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. They can't be drunk that early. And then he ties all that just went on and what is going on with what had been promised through the prophet Joel. You see, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, what went on here is an event in redemptive history. It's not some kind of experience that we need to try and repeat. 
It was the culmination of something that God had promised. Not necessarily the promise of more events like this to come. Well, there's no doubt that its implications, they rippled out, and we're going to see that. Not just as we walk through this passage, but as we walk through the the rest of the book of Acts. But this coming of God's Spirit, this inauguration of a new day and a new dawn was unique. And I make this point, and maybe I spend too much time making this point, because there has been a lot of confusion in the church about these things. There are some, and maybe you have experienced some of that teaching, who would like to teach that what happens here should be normative for the church. Or at the very least, desirable and something that all believers ought to attain. Rather than recognizing the unique, redemptive character of what God is doing here, of what God is showing here, some would like to argue that a second baptism of the Spirit is, is needed. And it's supposed to result in what we find here. Now, obviously, I'm opening up a can of worms here. A can of worms that we can't get closed today. We can't go into deep depth on this topic. But I do simply want to say that what happened to these believers here at Pentecost was unique. That when you come to Christ, when you repent of your sins and acknowledge Christ's place in your life, that you have the Holy Spirit. You are baptized with the Spirit then. Not necessarily in this way, not in this manifestation. But you are baptized with the Spirit then. And then what do we pray for in regards to the Spirit? I mean, does this relate at all? Well, the teaching of the New Testament is that, yes, we pray for the filling of the Spirit. We pray for the fullness of the Spirit. As I, as I prayed earlier, we pray that we would walk in the Spirit. We pray that we would exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. But we don't pray for, nor do we need, a second baptism of the Spirit. Because what went on here was God's unique entrance God's unique inauguration into a new day, a day of the Spirit. The last days have come. I'm sure we'll talk about that more, but the point is, as we move on, that God has kept His promises. That He is good. That the blowing wind of creation has become the wind of new creation in Christ Jesus, and that the fire and the wind and the voice of terror at Sinai has been replaced now with the nearness of His Spirit. And as the book of Hebrews says, we don't come to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, but we come to Mount Zion, to Jesus. It's interesting to think about the law being celebrated at Pentecost because as Moses ascended Sinai to return with the law here in Acts 2, what's happening? The new Moses, the one who is greater than 
Moses ever could be, Jesus ascended not just to a mountaintop, but ascended into the heaven and now sends His Spirit to write that law on the hearts of His people. You see, all those pictures of the Old Covenant are being trumped in this redemptive event. Marvel again at what God is doing and the fact that God keeps His promises. Well, that's just the beginning of what the giving of the Spirit in Acts 2 means. But I want to think about another truth for us this morning. And it's simply this. Not just that God's promises are true, but the Gospel is for all nations. The Gospel is for all nations. Nations. You see, just as the details of chapter 1, which we looked at last week, are intentional, so Dr. Luke fills this chapter with one region after another as he proclaims that God is making a new people. See, Luke is not fascinated with geography. That's not why he's going through this litany of where these people have come from. He's making the point that God is making a new people. How easy it is for us. We can all imagine how easy it is for us to be swept into national pride. To be swept into national pride in in even an unhealthy way to the exclusion of others. How much more was it a struggle for the Jews, the ones who had been set apart by Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the recipients of God's favor and protection and promised land for generations and generations. But God's plans have always been bigger. His sights have always been farther than just Israel. He wants glory and He deserves glory from all peoples. And the prophets foretold it. Daniel spoke of the Son of Man in chapter 7. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. And so it's the coming of the Spirit here in Acts 2, here at Pentecost, that signals the divine intent of God's new community. We didn't mention it last week, but it was hinted at in chapter 1. As the number of people was mentioned, 120 people were there, about 120 people. 120 was the number in Jewish tradition that was the minimum number for a new community in that time, in that place, to be established. You see, Luke is making the point that a new community is being formed. And he's punctuating that point as he lists these nations. It's a new community that's not bound by ethnicity or class or any other boundary. The Gospel is for the nations. See, what's happening here, to tie it in, and I know that we've done a lot of Old Testament tie-ins here in Acts chapter 2, but what's happening here is that Babel is being reversed. Babel is being reversed. 
Many of you who know the Scriptures, you remember the story from Genesis 11. We're given this table of nations in Genesis chapter 10 of where all the peoples came from and, and are going. And we read of humanity then in chapter 11 that's caught up in its own self-sufficiency, in its own pride, in its own independence, its own desire to gain status apart from God. And so God says, I'm going to have none of that. I will have no rivals. And so He confuses their language and He divides them and He separates them all over the earth. And what is Luke saying to us here? He's saying God's bringing it all back. He's reversing all that has gone before. And this lengthy list in chapter 2 is just to say there's a new unity on earth. A renewed unity through the Spirit given here at Pentecost and trickling out through the church. And we'll see this more and more as we study this book, as we go walking through the book of Acts. But for now, I just want us to recognize the point that God is wanting to make. The reason for all these nationalities, the reason for all these languages being spoken, yes, it's a clear statement of power. There's no doubt about it. But it's more than that. It's a vision of what God is doing and what God wants to do in and through us. Well, there's another point that I wanted to talk about. We're going to end there at chapter, at point number two, and we'll return to point number three, um, next week as we open up chapter two again and continue with Peter's sermon here in Acts two. But my prayer this morning as we go from this place, as we think about these truths, is that we as God's people will be undergirded once again with the fact that God's promises are true, that his gospel is for the nations, and that we, as we're going to talk about next week and into the following weeks, that we are the witness, we are the vehicle to take that wonder, to take those works to the nations. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for this amazing unique event in redemptive history where You blessed Your church with the presence of Your Spirit. The Comforter. The One who guides us into all truth. The One who empowers us for mission. Oh Father, as we go from this place, may we be encouraged again with what You are doing in the world. May we be ignited again that we serve a God who is good, who loves us, whose promises are true, and who has given us a life and a message worthy to be proclaimed, worthy to be shouted from the hilltops. Oh, Father, give us boldness in that, we pray. All of this in Jesus' name. Amen.